How's it going, Grady Nation? Chris Thomas here. Hope you're having a great day kind of day. And my guest on this installment of Grady Nation is Ari Tuya. Ari is the co-founder and CEO of Nutrition Service Ello. To learn more about Ello, go to elo.health. Ello means life in Finnish, not to be confused with Jeff Lynn's Electric Light Orchestra. Ari, which ELO song is your favorite? Telephone line or Turn to Stone? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you for being on. Thank you, Chris. Uh, really great to be here. Now, food gets a bad rap as being the cause of a lot of health problems, processed food, sugars, carbs, what have you. Um, I once had a guest who made a mess of themselves after eating a significant amount of miniature candy bars. So, you know, there are some dangers to certain foods. What is it about LO Health that is encouraging food as a core part of the path to wellness and feeling better? Yeah, it's a, it's a long, long and big, big question. So at, at LO, we... We think that um, many of us know what to do. We are just in living in a world where doing the right things are, are very difficult. We all know that um, we shouldn't, you know, drink, uh, drink five beers and, uh, and eat the hot dog in every ball game, but we, we still do it. Um, it doesn't make really feel as great, but, you know, every ad that you see on the on the commercial break are telling you that you know it's great to have the Bud Light or Coors Light or whatnot. And then of course, you know, the, the fast food that is made to be addictive poison. And um, our brain is very weak when it comes to making decisions when you're hungry. Uh, so at Elo, what we try to do is to build a system that makes it easier to do the right thing. And in some case, maybe even turn it in an autopilot in a way that you get the right nutrition delivered to you in the right time so you don't have to worry about it. Um, we all believe in this idea that, uh, um, you know, eat well, we should uh, sleep enough and be active and exercise. But very few of us do the things in the right way. And that's the reason, together with the, the fast food epidemic and the fast food uh, system that we have created that, um, you know, 75% of Americans today are overweight. 50% of the adults are obese. And um, despite the fact we are investing many, many billions a year on wellness, we don't see any improvement. Every year after year, we get heavier and we get uh, sicker. And um, I think the alarm light for me personally, when I realized a few years ago, that uh, the life expectancy has been declining for the last few years in the US and some of the Western countries. First time ever after the Second World War and the Black Death, we are seeing a negative number year after year on life expectancy. And it's mainly because of the fact that we are, we are living our life in a way that uh, it's making us sick. 
And the thing is, is that how much of all of this can you tie into circumstances surrounding the pandemic? Some some of this definitely can be. And if you think about the, the point about the life expectancy, which is maybe a surprise to many people, they have never heard about it, they have never thought about it. But to me, that's a really good metric of health system or or nation's uh, well-being. Um, in the COVID pandemic, we have seen definite, definitely an increase in uh, the decline. But even before that, we we had seen a few years of decline. And of course, the other big uh, culprit has been um, the, the other epidemic we, we have going that we don't talk a lot about now because of COVID is taking all the bandwidth. But uh, the opioids have been a re- really significant impact as well that has been causing many people uh, die too early. Um, but yeah, so with with um, COVID, we had, um, I mean, I think, I don't know if it's fact of life, but, you know, some people, many people talk about uh, COVID-19 not being only the illness, but also being the fact that in two years, people gained about 19 pounds. And that's quite a bit. Um, so... What can we what can we learn from that uh, that last few years is that um, um, by us being kind of stranded at home, not being able to go out at times, um, we definitely you know were stressed and uh, we then ended up eating eating a lot more. We drank more than before, uh, but also I think the good thing about that is we are walking now finally out of it, and uh, people actually are thinking more about health than they have ever been. There was a recent study published about um, what people want to do the most for the new year and um, trying to live more healthy was uh, really top of the list. Of course, you know, we always want to eat better, exercise more and so forth, but this was in a different magnitude as before. So people are really thinking now more about their health and maybe also investing more in their health than ever before. It's sort of a, a chicken and egg question, but I mean, given the pandemic has contributed to things like loneliness, feelings of isolation, and then the opioid crisis is somewhat tied to people trying to cope with psychological problems. How much do you think that mental health is an impediment to people pursuing proper nutrition and physical well-being? Uh, you, you are raising a really, really good point that um, often is neglected in the in the public discourse. Uh, the new new science. Um, Almost all of it is pointing the direction that uh, um, obesity is, is really not about uh, anyone being uh, lazy or anyone being worse than others. It, it really is more about the, uh, the, the mental side of things and the fact that, you know, we truly are addicted to certain food. And um, we also have uh, this sort of a position in our our body that um, once you gain some weight, you basically become uh, 
a certain size and then your body wants to get back to that size it's it's really difficult to move uh, the status quo and, and set the body in a new weight or new size so i think the op- opioid epidemic uh, obesity epidemic uh, both are about addiction and of course there is uh, psychological factors that we are what is the underlying reason why we do things it's often goes much deeper than we we think uh, but both really are about addiction i think and, and should be treated in the same way as uh, as an illness um, i don't think we we are treating today obesity in a way it should um, it should be a a chronic condition like uh, like diabetes Looking at it from a, a macro perspective, a global perspective, do you think that a lot of the things happening in the U.S. and in other Western developed countries are a function of, of something in, in terms of this you know, downward trend with life expectancy and an upward trend in terms of obesity. What is this a function of? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, <laughs> that's a really uh, a big question as well. And I, I think one way to think about this is that uh, we are not ready as as humans as as species really for the world we are living today so i think the the technology the evolution we have around us it's speeding up so much faster than our bodies and genes can evolve that uh, you know we are still manipulated um, and and driven by the underlying urges that we had in the stone age we are not that different as beings that we were 100 to 200 million years ago. We haven't evolved that far. So we are still craving for the sugar that we got very rarely when we were hunter gathering. You know, in a certain great day, you found a, a fruit or you found berries in a certain time of year. And that time you gorged and you ate as much as you can to gain fat for the winter. We are not, we're kind of different, not that different than bears who are eating, you know, the whole summer and the summer to gain fat to survive the winter hibernation. And uh, now we are living in a world where you can uh, press a button on your smartphone in order to get uh, food of any type delivered to your home within 20 minutes. I don't think our bodies are capable of uh, tolerating that kind of world. So that's, I think, a big, uh, big reason why these things are happening. And what to do about it is a really difficult uh, conundrum because it's really not about basic education. Like I said already, I I think most of us, all of us almost, know what we should do. But it's just very difficult to do the right thing when all the advertising, all the things around you are telling you to do the other thing, which is eating the the processed uh, food uh, that is all around us today. Now, an aspect that struck me with Hello Health was the high level of personalization with 
the service, in particular, you know, the protein product, a person selects their flavor and type of protein that they want to use. They describe their health goals, workout routine, and dietary performance. They monitor their workout with something like a wearable fitness device. And then they get personalized protein dosing suggestions after their workout. And the exciting part of all this is that there's a high level of individual care. But one can see where some folks might be reticent given LO knows so much about one's health regimen that it can feel maybe to some a little intrusive or big brother-ish. Can, can you speak to the potential positives and negatives of taking an individual's activity information and blood test data to construct a personalized set of nutrition offerings? We, we started um, a lot. The, the idea of the company um, has been around for a long time. And uh, it's a little bit like um, if you think about Star Trek, where you have uh, um, ability to analyze your health and, and then you can print out uh, nutrition in a replicator. That idea has been, I think, a very captivating idea for many decades in the in the science fiction and the nerd <laughs> circles. And I was definitely the captivated as a kid when I when I saw the original Star Trek first time in the eighties. Um, so our idea is to take the data about your body. Uh, the data is becoming more and more uh, robust and comprehensive when we are building new devices. Now we can do activity and sleep and recovery. We can collect uh, blood data at home fairly conveniently where we can get your normal lipid panel, A1Cs, vitamins, minerals, basically the health data that your doctor is uh, testing when you go to a lab at the lab corp or your doctor's office. And um, I think we also have a pretty good idea now, not not complete at all, but pretty good idea of the of the science of nutrition, like what can be done within, you know, food and supplementation, protein powders and other things that have an impact in your blood biomarkers or your health or or different things. So that's a world that we are we are much more evolved than we were let's say 10 years ago, when I was first time dabbling with this idea, um, I was defining whether I start a company about, you know, company of better doctor, a doctor finder company. Um, we ended up starting that company instead of the food company at that time, because the data and the science and the ability was not there. Now, finally, 10 years later, we are, I think, ready to start developing this. And you make a really good point about the data privacy and uh, whether this is intrusive uh, whether this is for everybody. And I think today um, it, it feels pretty science fiction that, you know, in, in our case, you can have two products now. One product, you can, um, you know, drop uh, four drops of blood on a card and send it to our lab. And we send you supplements that are going to help you uh, to find and fill your nutrient gaps. That's kind of science fiction, I think, for most people still. On the protein product that you mentioned, we we are connecting to your uh, wearable devices and basically designing a custom protein product for you based on your activities that you did. Think about your activity, the workout load, the amount of exercise, the type of exercise you do. We design it a custom product and also help you 
find and fill the nutrient gaps. So it is something that you know we are very taking seriously that uh, all the data you are giving to ELO, we treat it as your doctor would. We, we have a utmost focus on data security and, uh, and making sure so that you own your data. Um, if you want to cancel and you want to uh, delete your data, we do that uh, no question asked. And we, we have done that to many people who decided to leave the service. Uh, that's the right thing to do. You own your data. Elo um, is using some of that data to build the AI models, but we will never use the individual data that can be attached to anyone. We are not selling data to anyone. It's only used uh, to help you get a better product. Uh, those are fundamental I think, key points that you need to build in this type of company. And we are probably the first in the world who is doing this on the level we do. And, um, and we are copying and, and looking at the models in healthcare, in, um, in the DNA sequencing and elsewhere where people have done these things before. How to do it in a secure way that people can trust it. With that, there's certainly an element of data aggregation, big data, machine learning, looking for the patterns that are common with people's health. If, if folks feel uncomfortable that they are contributing to this major data gathering project that is helping to train artificial intelligence, what might you say to assuage their concern? I mean, you, you really highlight the point that um, I think we will uh, debate about a lot in the next five years as a society as a whole, because, I mean, we all have now heard about uh, uh, chat CPT being able to be a chatbot that you can communicate with. And that has been trained with um, millions and millions of pages of content from the interwebs. Um, same applies to, you know, the DAL and the other uh, image systems that are able to create new photos and images based on the millions of photos that are today on the web. So there are uh, debate ongoing whether, let's say, uh, Getty or uh, the image banks who make money by selling photos on images or, or least releasing them to people use, whether they um, should be able to um, take away those photos from the AI learning effort, yet they still make them publicly available on Google. <laughs> so it's a bit of an interesting discussion. And the same will definitely uh, come to the world of healthcare, because this is a topic that I, I spend a lot of my time um, and has been thinking about this for the last decade, almost every day. Uh, I built two healthcare data companies before Elo, and I think Elo is also a healthcare data company in many ways. And my opinion has been for a long time that um, healthcare is the one area that is going to be the most disrupted by machine learning and AI. Because if you think about your, your health today, all the things that are collected by a doctor and a hospital, it's data. It is data about a device measuring you. Could be your weight. It could be your blood pressure. It could be your glucose monitoring. Um, it's about the, the blood biomarker data. Think about your cholesterol. You get you know drugs because of your cholesterol is high. Your A1C is high. You get uh, diabetes. You're going to be medicated. So 
and that we are today doing it in a way where people, the doctors and, and nurses and healthcare professionals, they are looking at the data and then they are looking, basically going to a doctor's Google <laughs> and finding what to do with you and what how to medicate you. That's what, what we do every time, every day, you know, billion times a year in the US when doctor is meeting a, a patient. And that whole thing is much more uh, impactful if we do it uh, with AI. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer that in the 10 years to 15 years from today, when the healthcare data is finally in, in not in silos, but in a one data lake, we will be able to learn about it and build a much better system that will actually treat you like you should be treated as an individual, not as an end of one out of you know, a million other people, because we are all a bit different. And today we don't get individual care ever because we can't use the machine learning. So do we need doctors in the future? Yes, I think we do, but not in the same way as today. Oh, wow. That's an interesting point of view that will certainly spark some discussion moving forward. Now, users of Allo can chat with a dietitian over video or within the Allo app. What do you find is the value added of these consultations and how helpful is it if the coaching from the dietitian, the suggestions within the app are not being communicated to the user's general practitioner. So kind of speaking to what you were talking about a moment ago. <laughs> Good segue. Um, yes. So the doctor's role, like I said, it, it's not going to be like uh, we don't need doctors, like some people have said. We need doctors in the right role where they're going to be more, more of coaches and, um, and your health quarterbacks who are helping you to navigate the complicated system and get the right thing. That's what, how we are looking at our coaches who are registered dietitians. They work with um, every member one-on-one. If you are in the supplement program, you get to communicate with them over, the, over Zoom. Um, every quarter if you want and you can ask questions every day if you want over the app in a protein program we also giving people access to the team members via the app so you have a question about the product you have a ask question about you know food recovery nutrition you can do it and you get the response um, almost then and there that has been massively powerful impact for people's health so today elo offers um, supplement pills, we offer powders, we will offer more nutrition going forward. I can't talk about the details yet, but you know, you're going to see in the coming months more products coming. But with the, with the codes, we are able to help people navigate their decision-making process and make lifestyle changes, behavioral changes. And many people who have worked with the codes now for a year or two, they have been able to have massive impact in their health much more than you could ever do by eating all the pills in the world or you know eating more protein powder so they have changed the way how they do breakfast maybe they started to do intermittent fasting maybe they changed the fact that they ate pizza at 10 in the, at, at, at the evening do not do that uh, maybe they changed the alcohol habits to sleep better and those small changes have made a huge impact on many people's lives and for us at Elo. We think that there's a, there's a really important factor to have a real person in the loop. Yes, I think the real person will at some point you know, be partially automated with AI. Today, it's, it's really a real person. It's not an AI today. 
Um, and we have learned a lot about um, what is important for people and, and how can we help them. Uh, and also, I think there's this sort of a factor of accountability. Why do we pay somebody $200 an hour to stand next to us when we wait, we lift, you know, weights? I mean, we, we know how to do that. I mean, but we want to have somebody there with us because they keep us accountable to getting there every, every week, few times and doing it correctly. Same thing applies here. I think um, the ELO coaches is uh, helping you to be accountable to yourself. And that can be very powerful. At the time of this recording, ELO offers smart supplements at $99 a month and smart protein at $59 a month. What would you say to someone who would suggest the individuals and communities that need the sort of guided nutrition plan that ELO offers are being priced out? Yeah, I, I, I would completely agree with, um, with the sentiment. And uh, I think one of the, having been now in healthcare um, as an entrepreneur for quite a few years, and, um, and being involved in Medicare, Medicaid, and the commercial plans, and building many products, and, and, and lately also as, as, as an investor for, for quite a few companies. So I, I think there's a, this fundamental problem that we have today is that uh, a lot of the healthcare innovation, the new things that are built, are built for the people who already are pretty healthy. So we, I mean, ELO is, is among the services today that um, I think we are making the healthier healthier, and we are we are we are increasing the gap, not decreasing it, and that's not something that we want to do in the long term. We are really, I'm personally pained a little bit on the fact that uh, we are today because of the pricing a service that is not available for everybody. I think in a medium long term uh, there will be subsidies and, and, and different things that will come to play and will make the price points to be likely close to zero. Because the fact is that if you can help people stay healthy, they will cost less for the healthcare system and the insurance companies and employers and even, even government in some case, Medicare, Medicaid, should reimburse for these things. Why do we reimburse hundreds of billions of drugs when people are sick if we could help them before it happens? And why is this the case? Like you might may ask, like why 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 do I say what I said? It is simply because a lot of the new innovations will always be adopted by the early minority first, who tend to be the more wealthy people. Um, it really is in a way that the people in the most need will adopt anything new tech perspective early. And there are many companies in healthcare who have tried to do it the other way around. And almost all of them have failed because you, you, you can't change. It's almost like a, like a nature's law that you can't get uh, the people in need to adopt something early on before other people have adopt, adopted it and tested it because they are, they are too busy. Many people are working, you know, they are working in you know, multiple jobs. They are caring the families and children and they don't have time to think about these things. They don't have access to food, nutrition as some other people have. So it's a really, really important question. I think we, we, we are in a tough spot, I think, 
because we are getting healthier in some part of the population, but then others are definitely not getting any healthier. They're getting sicker by the day. Now, as someone who lives in San Francisco, the Bay Area, you encounter a lot of economic disparity. What do you think the private sector can do to address the health inequalities that are out there that perhaps the public sector cannot do? I'm, I'm a big believer that uh, if, if the public sector can't get something done, there has to be grassroots level activity. It can be organizing on a community level, it can be startups, it can be you know, non-profit organizations, many things that you know, can, we need to take things in our, our hands as people. Uh, we, don't, we can't you know, hope that the government or some decision maker will do it for us. That, that's, I think, you know, a belief that I, I got more and more strong in the last you know, 15 years while being living in, in, in San Francisco and, and seeing, you know, we, we are, I'm living in the wealthiest city in the world in many ways. We are the most billionaires by, by population, yet we also have a massive homeless problem. My neighbor actually um, has been the commissioner for the homelessness in California for a decade or more for two governors. And I talk with him a lot about this uh, at times. And I mean, it's a very difficult problem. I mean, there's no, we, we don't go into that today, but you know, it's another hour discussion. But you think there's something easy about it? There's nothing easy about solving this problem because it's, it's not about, you know, people having enough money to have a house. It's really more about mental health and, and opioids and, and, and drug use that is very difficult to, to cope. And, but, you know, I mean, I have another perspective a little bit because I, you know, I lived um, my first 25 years in Finland mainly. And um, Finland, people might not know much about the country, but it is likely the most equal society today still in the whole world. There are no billionaires, well, few now, but there are no homeless people either. There are no really poor people. There's the, the, the classic, you know, Nordic uh, uh, social support network that is taking care of people. Yes, the tax is a bit higher, but actually the same as in California today. Uh, schools are free uh, all the way until master's degree. Uh, you can go for free. Uh, you have free healthcare. Uh, and you have almost free childcare as well. That's paid by the taxes. And the system is quite efficient. And it's interesting when you look at those countries, uh, Finland, you know, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, how different they are from that perspective. Um, and I think there's something we could learn from that aspect of you know, taking care of the people who are the ones in the biggest need. Um, I don't think we do that really well anywhere today in the in the U.S., we talk about it. Um, we talk about uh, biblical values and, and and so forth, but you know, very few people do actually think about it. One of the aspects within that is you know, Finland, Norway, Denmark. It's a matter of scale. Certainly, there can be services provided to many, but given the United States population is over 330 million people, I would think at, at this point, wouldn't it be too much of a, a challenge to attempt to emulate the, the model seen in those countries? 
I don't think the scale has anything to do with, um, I mean, if you think about scale, um, scale is usually making things cheaper, not more expensive. Scale makes things more efficient because you have economy of scale and you can do things um, um, at the lower price and you can be more customized. So I don't think that's the thing. I mean, it's more about uh, how uniquely um, multifaceted the American population is compared to the Nordic countries. I mean, they used to be very homogeneous country uh, from population perspective. And also the decision-making process, it's a one country, you know, US is, is you know, 50 different countries <laughs> with the different rules uh, and, and almost no alignment from the political perspective and no will to do anything difficult, at least uh, in the last, you know, decade. So I, I don't know if the model that, you know, is now implemented in the Nordic countries is a model we should think about copying. I think we need to build our own model in America. And I think we should be uh, really thinking out of the box. And I mean, that's what, what, you know, this country has done always so well is to reinvent itself. And I think we are in a moment when, if we talk about the original topic we started from, which is the nutrition and, um, you know, the obesity, the whole idea of, you know, half the population being chronically sick today and costing us way more. What can we do about that? Like, most people don't realize it, but today in America, we spend $4.5 trillion, $4,500 billion a year on healthcare costs. More than half of that money we spend on managing the diet and lifestyle-borne chronic conditions. So we spend so much more money. This is like, you know, a couple of, you know, wars every year on just managing people, not healing on any of them, but managing their health. And if that sounds crazy, then think about this. The 4.5 trillion a year, it equals to almost 50%, 50, 50 of the global healthcare spend. How many people we have, you said about the size, we have about 4% of the population of the world living in America. We spend 50% of healthcare cost. Like doesn't make any sense. We are all 10 times over indexing the spend. And you may say, you know, we are wealthy, we can do that. No, we can't. We are not spending more than, you know, two times over indexing or three times on cars or food or anything like that. So healthcare is completely outlier today and it is absolutely broken. I mean, not many people don't really understand macro, but the system we built today is so unsustainable that we will bankrupt the whole country if we don't modify. So we should have basically a uh, national emergency. Yes, we can do it for wildfires, but we should also do it for obesity. And we should do it right now. And we should say, let's do something about it. And let's throw in the heavy guns in this case, like regulation, you know, tax the sugar properly, uh, ban advertising for kids, and do those things that have been done in many countries already that work. And then we can have a chance. But I don't think that will happen because we have no political will to even try to think about that. So it has to be the grassroots, the startups, the communities, and then the nonprofits who are going to do it first. And everybody, you and me, to take the thing in our hands. Ari, are you announcing your candidacy for president? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> 
Prior to your time at Elo, you were the CEO of Quest Analytics, which allows for health plans and regulators to manage the performance of healthcare networks. What were the signature accomplishments while at Quest, and what are challenges with data management and health that people on the outside don't necessarily appreciate? Well, Quest is one of these companies that nobody really has heard about, and um, I don't think they need to know about it. It's a, it's a company working in the back of the healthcare office uh, with health plans, the government regulators, and the hospitals to make sure that the, the doctor network that you access, if you have, let's say, uh, United Healthcare or Blue Cross or Blue Shield health plan, that you are accessing a network that has the right type of doctors at the right quality who are giving you the right care. And you can actually access the care without waiting months in line. So we called always uh, Quest as a company that focuses on helping people access healthcare when they need help. And that happens to everybody at times. And we appreciate the fact if we can access the care at the right time. And I think, you know, the biggest accomplishment I think you know the company has done the company has been around for a long time uh, almost 20 years or one part of the company has been around for 25 years already um, I think they built a really good system that is um, helping pretty much everybody today when you when you go into your health insurance company website or you go to Medicare website you find the list of doctors and you are happily finding out that there is somebody near you that you can access that day if that happens I mean then the company has done their work well. Um, so we impact, I don't know, 200 million people a year when they go for doctor's office behind the scenes. Nobody needs to know our name, but you know, we are one of the powering entities that makes that whole thing happen. And in a way, think about this. If, uh, if you have a health insurance, uh, not everybody has one, which is a very, very big problem in the country. We need to solve that still. 19 million people don't have a health plan. They don't get care. But if you have your Medicare card or you have your um, Blue Cross or, or Aetna or Cigna, whatever you have. Think about that card in a way that it's the same as uh, Hilton. You are, you are the Hilton member or you are the Marriott member. That it gives you access to different doctors. That's all it does. You can access certain doctors behind a card network at a certain price point. That's what the health plan is. And, um, and Quest basically is helping to design that network and make it correct and and compliant with all the rules and regulations. Are, are there rewards points involved, like Hilton and Marriott Bonvoy? Because I, I have quite a few Hilton. <laughs> Hilton points, can, can I use that on uh, my next doctor visit? That, that would be good. I, I think actually, you know, I, I, I was I just uh, uh, joined as an investor into, into a new startup. It's called um, uh, NES, N-E-S-S Health. And uh, they are selling people a credit card where you don't get points about travel, but you get points about healthy behavior and healthy purchases. And then you get benefits like healthy meals, um, healthy activities, and, and healthcare. I think that's a great idea because um, we, many of us are obsessed on collecting points on Hilton or, or whatever air miles you collect, United, or your, your safe Sapphire points. And I think it's very healthy to collect points for healthy behavior. Adding a bit of 
gamification to health and wellness. Totally. And actually, that kind of goes to your history with Nokia, but we'll get to that in a moment. You you mentioned it. You are an active angel investor and advisor to startups. What are the startups that spark your interest more often than not? And what tips do you have for folks launching an idea off the ground? For me and, and my wife, uh, we, we invest as individuals, so we don't have a... Um, big fund or investors investing in our fund. So we can make the decision our, our own way. And uh, for us, it's all about um, investing in companies that uh, are truly trying to make the world a bit better place, meaning mainly in, in place of healthcare or human performance. And, and sometimes in education that we also uh, value a lot. Uh, what, what matters, I mean, I think if you are building a new company or new idea, um, it, it's just all about uh, uh, doing something that you truly care about. Building a new company or writing a book or doing anything meaningful in life will take time. And uh, if you pick a topic that you don't really care about, um, you're not going to be able to do it for 10 years every day, 15 hours a day. So that's the, the biggest crux people often have, that they, they have the first idea that they stumble upon, or some people, they are looking for the buck uh, to make money. Um, I don't think nobody should start a new company or startup or, or new business if you want to make money. That's likely not going to work. <laughs> but you should start it definitely if you have a passion about something or you want to make a statement or you want to change the world um, to a direction that you believe in. Um, that is, in my mind, the right uh, core idea. And all the companies that we have invested, I think there are 55 companies now, they are all companies where founders truly believe that this has to exist and they have a passion on doing that one thing. And, and many of them have succeeded way more than um, I would have ever believed. And before Quest Analytics, you mentioned it a few moments ago, you were co-founder and CEO of Better Doctor, a doctor search engine. What are some common things people seemingly look for when seeking out practitioners? And what might be some common mistakes people make when searching for practitioners? Yeah, I, I started the company after having, um, having a 15-year 15, 15 struggle with healthcare system and systems with, with my wife and, and she had health issues for a long time. Uh, we lost our, our first son um, in the process. And I really wanted to build a system that um, uh, could help people to find a doctor when they, when they need help. And um, we, we all couldn't always find the right care at the right time. And that caused us you know, a lot of pain and, and suffering for, for our family. Um, so the idea was, I think, very noble. And I think we we built a really interesting system where we were trying to build a system like if you go to Amazon today and um, you you want to buy a new vacuum cleaner. We just bought one month ago. And I mean, my, my wife told me about it. It's funny. There was like 15,000 reviews on the vacuum cleaner we bought. And it's a really good vacuum cleaner. But, you know, <laughs> do I really need 15,000 reviews that you know about that? And while 
then I'm um, I'm I have an old friend of mine who has a has a heart issue, and he's gonna go to open heart surgery, and he is doctor at one Yelp review. So there's something wrong with the system if if we have no information available on deciding the right place to go and open your 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 chest, and you have fifteen thousand reviews for the vacuum cleaner. Why can't we have more transparency in in the healthcare? So at, at Better Doctor early on, we, we were trying to put together information, what's available out there, hidden in silos. Like we were the first company to open up the, the claims data. So we worked with, uh, with uh, different entities who were able to get the FOIA Act, um, Freedom of Information Act out in Florida court. And the Medicare um, claims data was opened up. Claims data means what has doctor done at what cost and how many times in Medicare world. And that data was really valuable because we were able to find out that, you know, there was a, there's a heart surgeon who had done the surgery 500 times. And there's another one who has done it 10 times. Who do you want to go? Do you want to go for the doctor who has done it 500 times or 10 times? I bet you want to go for the first one. So that was some of the things like, you know, finding people who do things the most often and then finding people who do the things in an in a environment that is succeeding a lot. There are different, you know, systems built about hospital quality. And, you know, you, you better go to a certain hospital that has a good reputation. And what we found at Better Doctor, for example, is that there are, not naming any names, but, you know, let, let's just say an example. This is not a real example, but, you know, like Mayo Clinic, uh, is a really trusted institution. But Mayo Clinic might not be best at all in A, B, and C, but they're really good at other stuff. And nobody knows that because you think that the Mayo is great at everything, which is not the case. So we were able to kind of understand on a department level and the outcome level, what is happening there. We also collected a lot of the consumer feedback. And, and then we also did this interesting thing that, you know I don't know if anyone has done since, we took the, the referral network data. So you know that the, uh, in the Medicare data, you saw who is the doctor who was referring the patient to the specialist? Who was the primary care doctor, for example? And then if you understand like who are the best primary care doctors and you can understand like who do they refer to, that referral network can give a really good idea of the quality of care as well. Uh, you expect that the best primary care doctor will like to know better and will refer you to a good doctor and so forth. So we built that whole system and I think we were trying to make, um, make the system better. We helped about 20 million people to find a doctor and in the end it became a, a data company uh, that later was acquired by a private equity company. Uh, but it was really interesting and I mean I'm, I'm pained on the fact that you know still 12 years later <laughs> we don't have a system today to help people find a doctor. I'm getting emails almost every day from somebody sending me a note, can you help me to find the right doctor? And I have no way to point them to a place that you could do it. Often people still go to Google today and ask the doctor Google where to go. And pretty soon they'll probably be asking chat GPT. You can train the AI to help you find a doctor. But Ari, I really do appreciate you being willing to sh share that discussion of you know, a, a painful moment in in your family's history, and and being open about it. And it makes me think about you know, the importance of family time now, because I know you're 
obviously very busy with Elo. So how do you make sure that the loved ones in your life get the attention from you that will make them feel healthy, feel better psychologically? I think it's really important um, factor that you know you often forget and and uh, having been an entrepreneur for almost uh, 20 years now building building companies and business from ground up that can be very taxing um, I think that the, the thing I learned a long time ago already is that you it's not a sprint it it really is a marathon and in a marathon if you go too fast in the beginning you're not going to see the end line ever and uh, that applies also to to your family you know you you need to have a a good support network and yes you have that you know in your friends and in your co-workers but in the end you know if things are not well at the home you're not going to be able to perform well mentally or even physically and uh, and i've been really blessed in a way to have um, after our drama we have uh, you know two healthy kids now and 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 they are they are thriving in school um my wife is feeling better than ever uh Mainly, I think a big part about is the is nutrition that you know we found the right type of diet that was able to help her heal herself. That's that makes me a big believer of a food as medicine idea. And um, but you know, like COVID time for us, you know, with the young kids, it's been wonderful time because you can really, you know, spend time at home more than I have ever spent time before in my life. And you know, we we ate uh, lunch and dinner almost every night. And day together for the last few years so that's been a blessing has the experience changed your philosophy as a ceo of working from home i've been working remotely uh, for a long time because i was running global teams um, in different time zones and um, and then i was running a, a company that you know was possibly around here possibly elsewhere so I think my my philosophy now is that you know you don't need to have the face to face, but uh, you can do more things asynchronously. But some things you really need to do face to face, like uh, like bonding, the trust building, some product development. Um, but I think the, a lot of the FOMO, uh, fear of missing out, went off during the COVID, and that was a great thing I think uh, for me and a lot of people because you had to you thought about you have to be in every event, you have to be speaking here and there. And now you can do more of that at home, which is uh, a lot better. What is something that you have learned about yourself in guiding people to achieve goals and a mission as a CEO of a company? Um, I think the CEO is um, is a role that is, is very mystified and um, often something that uh, people think it's somehow like a... I don't know. It's really something I don't know how to even say it. But you know, when I was you know doing this stuff in Europe, I think uh, people were less uh, um, uh, amored about the kind of the title. But in the U.S., it seems like the CEO has this sort of mythical thing. And in my opinion, if if you are successful CEO, you only do three things: you you make sure that the company has a a vision and it knows where to go. There's a direction. You make sure that uh, the company has the right people at the management. You have to hire the right people. And lastly, you have to make sure that the company has money in the bank. 
so it can invest in in the things that matter. So those are the only things you need to do as a CEO, and the rest I think you know is up to the team to define. Wow, and a, a very uh, modest uh, approach when you think about it. Well, it, but it has to be because you know, <laughs> as a as a leader, you know, there's no, only so much you can do yourself, and uh, you you often you can be a CEO who makes every decision, but then you're gonna burn out and you end up making many many more mistakes than you should. So you should only make the decisions that matter the most, and you should spend a ton of time on those topics and really make the right decision. And the rest you should give for the team and let them make the decision because they know better than you do. You've been in the health data and personal wellness realm since 2011, but from 2006 to 2011, you were the head of Nokia's application and gaming studio. How do you think the experience shaped your abilities today? Yeah, that was, I think, a uh, life defined. You have these moments in um, in your life that um, make you kind of who you are. So for me, I think, you know, one key piece was um, as a kid, I, I played 10,000 or 50,000 hours of video games in the early days of the web and, and internet and computers. And that, you know, gave me the passion of, you know, the world of tech and and, and so forth. But really the Nokia time um, as, a, as a leader and um, as a... Uh, business operator, it gave me the biggest learning that I will probably ever have in my life. Usually in the big companies, you know, you go there and you, you, you do a thing and, you know, something happens and then you walk away. But at the Nokia, it was very unique because I joined the company when Nokia was introducing the first uh, smartphones. This is before iPhone and Android. And, and Nokia was every day inventing things that were massively impactful today. Like, you know, first email on the phone, first time taking photos on the phone, first time taking video and sharing it with somebody on the phone, and, and so forth and so forth. You know, we invented the App Store, we invented the apps and all this. There's a lot of stuff happening around you. And it was just normal work we did. And it wasn't like we, we knew we were changing the world. And then at the same time, when I moved to the Silicon Valley in San Francisco, 2008, I saw the iPhone and the Android come alive and they changed basically the whole equation. Nokia became almost obsolete in, in the next few years. And when you are there in the company who becomes obsolete because of the other disrupting companies, uh, you learn more than you can ever imagine. Like at failure, you learn more than at winning always. And Oh boy, we we lost big time at Nokia. You know, when when I started, we were valued three hundred and fifty billion dollars, and we were the most valuable company in the whole world. And when I left, uh, Nokia uh, phones were sold for seven billion dollars for Microsoft. So we lost about three hundred and fifty billion dollars of value. That's the biggest loss in business, I think, um, since you know. Well, the only bigger one now is I think Facebook, who lost even more value in the recent you know, year or two. Who are some people that you look up to or that happen to inspire you in life? I, I look at, up my, you know, my spouse and, you know, my, <laughs> my, my best friend every day. 
who is um, you know better than me at uh, at most things to to do with humans, <laughs> and um, and then also I I really look up everyone who is uh, working on things that they really believe in or doing things that they really really believe in. Um, it's always inspirational to see somebody and talk to somebody who is um, is so passionate about topic uh, that I don't know anything about. Um, those are, I think, great people. And also, I think, you know, there's the aspect of uh, usually the people who have a passion on something they do, they also tend to be pretty happy and content in their life in general. And they tend to live more in the now, not living in the future or in the past. Other than you know, new products rolling out and being mindful of the price for incoming customers, what do you think is on the roadmap? For Ella, what would you like it to achieve in the next few years? Elo is um, is a project that um, I, I started to really focus on this idea of food is medicine and trying to make it real. That's our, kind of our ultimate goal. And um, I hope in the next, uh, I don't know, if two years or three years, maybe 10 years, we are able to help make that thing real. We're not going to be the only one. There will be thousands of other companies it will become a really big thing, I believe. Um, I also want to be able to help establish this idea of smart nutrition, smart nutrition that would be kind of same as your smartphone or smart home or smart car or smart watch, uh, being personalized, uh, being precise and, and proactive. We hope we can make that to be something that other people also believe in. And of course, I, I want to, I mean, our goal is to help a million people uh, stay healthy or even in, in a medium term, get healthy from the chronic conditions they have. Those are some of the areas that we want to work in. And I definitely want to be able to make, um, make ELO to operate uh, in a nutrition space broadly, where we're not going to only have, like we discussed, uh, uh, supplement pills and, and powders, but also proper nutrition, like, you know, think about meals and groceries and others. So that's where we want to go. Um, it will take a long time. Uh, it will be difficult, but I think it will be a very meaningful thing to build. And um, that's what I think every day, like what is the most meaningful thing I can do with my time on the earth? And I mean, this feels like the right thing to do right now. Ari Tuya, you're doing good work. I wish you well. Great A Nation, I encourage you to research Elo. Go to Ello.health, see the background of the company, seek out you know some of the answers to questions you might have through the website, and perhaps even look into acquiring one of the products on Ello. Great Nation, thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you.